Saints, good morning. morning. How's everybody doing? Praise God. Praise God. It's good to be with you all this morning to uh, open up the text, to dialogue about the text, to think about the text, to hear from God, and to see how best that we can apply his word. Let's pray, and we'll dig into it. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for this moment in time. We thank you for your grace and mercy that you've extended to all of us through last night and this morning's waking up, as many did not. And so we have the opportunity, Father, to praise you, to worship you, to thank you, Lord, to lean upon you, to ask you for whatever we need, and we know that you will give it to us, Father, according to your will. And Lord, we ask right now that you would just open up our hearts and minds to receive your word implanted, that we wouldn't just be merely hearers of your word, to be fake with your word, to manipulate your word, but that we would become doers of your word, Father, for our good and for your glory, Father. We ask that you would do this for your good pleasure. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So when the text this morning of Ephesians chapter 6, as you see in your bulletin, Ephesians chapter 6, a very familiar passage, verses 10 through 20. I'll open up with this. I want us to be real this morning. I want us to be honest with ourselves and with each other. As we talk about this Christian life, it's hard, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, it's real. The Christian walk is not easy. Sometimes it's promoted as a life when we first get into it. It's promoted as a life of freedom from hardship, suffering. People are easily misled to think that once you trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that you will no longer have to deal with sinful tendencies, sinful proclivities. Foolish people are still here, right? Yes, some of us are here now. We act foolish sometimes. Temptations forever remain. See, if we remain, and we will remain until the Lord comes in this flesh, on this earth, in this decaying body, we will always be challenged by sin. It's not a simple walk. Every Christian, every single Christian understands that tension and should understand that tension between the flesh and the spirit. See, this is why Paul talks about in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who will <laughs> deliver me from this body of death? Because in those preceding verses, he lays out how he is constantly warring against doing what is good, which is in his mind, and not doing what is evil, which is in his flesh. I remember around 10 to 11 years ago, having moved to Louisville, Kentucky for seminary, and the apartment that I had gotten, that I was living in, it had this little subtle smell of cigarette smoke. And I remember telling the, telling the apartment manager if they can handle that. She's like, yeah, it's probably embedded in the carpet, but we can try and shampoo it for you. Well, that worked for a few days and the smell came back. And then I tried to do other things, try to put some carpet deodorizer down and it lasted for a few days, but the smell was back. There was only so much that I could do to get rid of that smell. All I was doing was just covering up the smell or covering up the symptoms uh, for a little while. And then it would come right back. Well, that's the same thing uh, for, this, for this Christian life. No matter what we do to try and counter the smell of sin, to try and counter the impact and the temptations of sin, it will always be there. Why? Because every single Christian, every single facet of human personhood is tainted by sin. Our thinking is twisted so that we cannot think as we ought to think. Our wheels are distorted so that we cannot decide as we ought to decide. Our bodies are spoiled so that our natural appetites grow out of proper proportion or enslaves us in the grip of addictive behaviors. All of our affections, all of our desires and dislikes are disordered. See, we're attracted by what we ought not to desire. And we are untouched by what we should delight in. We desire and delight in what we ought to turn away from and hate. 
We care little for what we ought to uh, deeply desire. We long for the praise of others while struggling to rejoice when others succeed. We're inwardly sad when others rejoice at some success in life, wishing that their success had been ours. And we even secretly, we get a little pleased when they fail. Am I the only one in here? Rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep at times is far from us. It's far from our DNA. See, we love our pleasures and comforts while caring little for the honor of God and the glory of Christ. Beloved, that's our daily battle as Christians. That's our daily struggle. Every Christian is engaged in that sort of fight. But that's just one side of the problem. That's a forever battle. The second problem that we have is, although we are aware that we're in a constant war, we don't use the tools or wear the gear and use the weapon to fight. Or to fight where? This is why some of our efforts have been ineffective. This is why we are losing uh, miles on that run. This is why we are losing multiple battles to the flesh because they're not even aware, or we're not even aware sometimes, of the weapons that is at our disposal. Or we don't know how to use them. Or we're too busy trying to develop and use our own weapons in a war that calls for something much greater than what our minds and hands can even produce. Beloved, you know the weapons of our warfare. <laughs> they are not carnal. They are not of the flesh. But they have divine power for what? To pull down strongholds, to destroy strongholds. See, the question is, well, preacher, how do we fight? What are these weapons? We're going to get to it. See, because for every satanic problem, there is always a godly solution. Paul gives that to us uh, this morning out of Ephesians 6. And I pray that the words of uh, Paul's letter to the church of Ephesus helps to equip us this morning, provides us with much reinforcement for the days ahead. Let's read this text. Finally, in verse 6, chapter 6, verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day. And having done all, stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplications for all the saints and also for me. That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. And I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. In the course of his letter, Paul had opened to the church at Ephesus. He opens up with all these brilliant secrets of grace. The mystery of their election. The wonder of their salvation and spiritual resurrection. And celebrating the divine power in their lives. Their heavenly positions. Their peace. The unity amongst the saints. Their giftedness. And then the call to live as light and to be filled with the spirit and live out the beautiful order of the household 
in mutual submission as husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters. He presents these beautiful and exalted thoughts and reflections of divine mystery and practical living, yet he wants to remind his readers that such a life cannot be lived without a spiritual battle. The fact is that beautiful Christian life is to be lived even while camped out on enemy territory. Paul knows that they will become tempted to live a life of complacency and self-satisfaction just like we all do. Anticipating this, he made sure to let believers at Ephesus know that as people who have been granted new life in a new family with new relationships, they still would endure spiritual warfare. So this morning, I want to speak about how Christians are equipped to fight spiritual battles. And you see the title, Every Christian Has Proper Armor to Stand, excuse me, to stand strong in this world. We just need to wear it. We just got to put it on. Put on this new man, right? And so I'm going to talk about four ways. Four ways, four practical ways. We're going to walk through this text verse by verse, line by line. Talk about four ways to fight this battle. One, you can find your strength in the right source. We see that in verse 10. Find your strength in the right source. Secondly, put on the armor. See that in verse 11. Put on the armor. Third, excuse me, I said four ways. It's actually five ways, sorry. Third, know what you're up against. You got to know who the enemy is. Verse 12, know what you're up against. Fourthly, understand the equipment you have and use it. You got to understand how to use the equipment that you have. See that in verses 13 through 17. Fifthly and lastly, last point, is to pray. Pray. See that through 18 through 20. First point. Find your strength in the right source. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in in the strength of his might. Paul is bringing this letter to a close. He introduces his final subject in this letter with urging the Ephesian believers to be strong in the Lord. Doesn't just say be strong. He says be strong in the Lord. Because when it comes to spiritual warfare, we cannot be and will never be sufficiently strong in and of ourselves. People of God cannot strengthen themselves. We must and have to be empowered. And not just one time, but the original tense of this text indicates that it is a continue and a constant empowerment that we need. See, if we are going to have adequate strength for, this, uh, for these spiritual battles of life, it must be the Lord's strength. Three things I believe are implied here. First, strength is required for the Christian life. Strength is required for the for the christian life there is no passivity in this thing see stamina vigor drive vitality it's all required because a life committed to walking with the lord is not a cakewalk and it is not an extended vacation it comes with highs and lows ebbs and flows those of us who are married, knows how this goes, right? right. <clears throat> Singles, pay attention. <laughs> you, you might question your desire for it after I get finished real quick. The day you say I do, you kiss the bride, you have the reception, you may go on a uh, honeymoon, everything is blissful, harmonious, joyful, you're in paradise for about a week. Right. I, wouldn't, I didn't mean it as a joke, but I'm saying, <laughs> you're on, you know, your vacation honeymoon for about a week, right? And then you return home, and then real life kicks in. The point is that the honeymoon doesn't last forever because you must come back to reality. You have to adjust uh, your former life of singleness and self-centeredness and now become selfless and consider your spouse and how to best care and how to best love and how to best serve and provide and to live with one another through sickness and arguments and different plans, money, no money, 
all sorts of unexpected issues and whatever uh, else life wants to throw at you. It's an adjustment. It stretches you in ways that you've never been stretched and requires a new level of patience and endurance. Because it's not just you, but you got to consider somebody else. And it's like that all because you've entered into a new life called marriage. Mm-hmm. Side note for the singles now. This is why Paul, <laughs> he says in 1 Corinthians 7, now look, those who marry will have worldly troubles. He says, I want to spare you with that. I want you to be free from anxieties, all right, free from worries. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his spouse. And I got to learn how to please my wife. So if y'all want that, get married. If you don't, stay single. I digress. All right. So as it relates, oh, she said, yeah, I want that life. I was like, okay. <laughs> so as it relates to adjustments in a new life of marriage, in a similar fashion, all Christians have to adjust once they've entered the newness of life found in Christ Jesus. See, this walk requires an extra dose of strength, extra patience, power, like nothing else, much more than any of us can even grasp. See, it's almost like you hit a home run in Little League, but a home run in a Little League field is not the same as a high school field. And a home run in a high school field is not the same as a college field. And a college field is not the same thing as a professional baseball park. Each level requires a different measure of strength, a different level of tactics, specialties. And so as we are growing from babes and increasing in our maturity, it requires a different dosage. And as you live your former life, <laughs> you don't use the same tools in a former life if you use any at all. Now in this new life of Christianity, you must use what the Lord has given you if you want to overcome and be able to fight well. And so Christians have to adjust. And this is a more enhanced method of means of obtaining the strength once we get into this life of Christian, Christianity. So there's a different level of power that one must have and a different means of obtaining that power. And one of the ways not to acquire that power is us. We don't obtain it by coming to us. This is the negative. No, we go to him for it, but one of the ways you don't get it is through us yourself okay which is the second implication here we have no strength in ourselves see one major struggle for believers is is conditioning ourselves to consistently and immediately seek strength in God rather than in ourselves and other sources of power and security Isaiah chapter 40 verse 29 says he gives power to the faint and to him who has no might he increases strength he does it and if we could have the attitude that Paul spoke of in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, Paul says that he would rather boast about his weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in him. That's contradictory to the lifestyle that we live here in this world. We want to boast and brag on our own so that you can see our own. He says, no, I'm going to boast of my weaknesses so that you can see his power in me and not mine. See, what happens when we look into ourselves? What happens when we try to manufacture and conjure up stuff within ourselves and our own flesh and our own carnality? Come on over here, David. We just read it better earlier. Right. He committed adultery and then tried to conceal it with a murder. Second Samuel chapter 11, right? Not only him, but what about Moses? In Numbers chapter 20, the people of Israel began complaining because they had no water. God says, come on over here, Moses. Come to me. Let me tell you what to do. He says, take your staff, go to the rock, speak to the rock, and tell it to give forth water. Moses does the opposite. He goes, gets mad, loses self-control, hits the rock twice with a staff, and the water comes out. What happens is he forfeits his sticking to the promised land. Well, not only David and Moses, but also we see our brother Cain. Y'all remember Cain in Genesis chapter 4, the firstborn of the creator, Adam and Eve's son? God tells Cain, he sees Cain's countenance, his countenance is low, he's disheveled. He says, Cain, if you do well, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door, and it desires you. But Cain, you must master it. The next verse, he goes and murders his brother. 
leaning on your own. But then we also see in Genesis 2, chapter 17, God tells Adam, do not eat of the tree of the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. Then we see in chapter 3, we see Satan. He's described as the most crafty of all the beasts that God created. That's in verse 1 of chapter 3. Then it goes on to say, he manipulates Eve. And then you got Eve who says to herself, man, this looks good for food. And not only does it look good for food, she says it's desiring to the eye. And not only that, but man, I can be wise if I eat of this. In that verse right there, we see, what do we see? The lust of the flesh, lust of the, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. All right there in that verse. All right there. And so we see what happens when we lean on our own selves right there. Every time that they did not trust in the Lord with all their heart and they did not lean on him, but they leaned on our own understanding and did not submit their ways to him, all their paths took a left turn instead of remaining straight. Every single time. And we can learn from that. And we're all guilty of that. The third implication is this. <clears throat> Strength is only found in Christ. One way of understanding this notion of being strengthened in, in the Lord is in the light of John 15. There Jesus teaches his followers that embodying in him, the vine, is the only way to maintain the possibility of hearing, excuse me, of bearing fruit in an otherwise hostile environment. Abiding in the Lord is the way in which believers may come <clears throat> to be strengthened by the Lord. We have strength, but it needs to be supplemented. It needs to be amplified. It needs to be made greater so that we are not overpowered by sin, that we are not overpowered by evil, that we might not boast in our own power. You remember Gideon. Gideon was the uh, fifth judge of Israel. In Judges chapter 7, Israel is going up against the Midianites, whose army is described as many, uh, thick as locusts, camels, uh, as many as the sand on the seashore is what it says. And so they are going up against it. They're in battle. Gideon brings 32,000 troops. But out of obedience to God, he decreases it to 22,000. God said, there's still too many. I need to decrease it a little bit more. He decreases it and goes down to 300. Why does he do this? He says, so that Israel may not boast that their strength is what saved them and not mine. Strength is only found in Christ, lest we boast about ourselves. Second point here. We must put on the armor. We must put on the armor. Verse 11 says, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The way that we are to remain strong in the Lord is to put on the full armor of God. When we have this armor on, we are able to stand against the tricks and the schemes of the devil. Satan is a deceiver and he is a destroyer. Revelation 12 talks about that. He deceives in order to destroy that's what he wants to do. I'm going to deceive you so that I can destroy you and others. Putting on the armor, of course, is just a metaphor for following certain instructions of Scripture. Second Peter verse uh, 1 tells us his divine power has granted us all we need that pertains to life and godliness. Amen. See, life is a battlefield. It's not a scene of soft enjoyment and ease as much as we want to make it. But it's actually a hard conflict with enemies within, enemies without. Putting on the armor of God provides the protection when we're on the defense. And it's also good for confronting when we're on the offense. It's good for rebuke, for reproof, for teaching, training up in righteousness. See, his armor is good, and his armor is well adapted for our use, and it fits every single one of us. See, yet, this is not a warning to be sure to, to, to put it all on. It's not a warning. He's not saying uh, to forget nothing. 
Because why should a soldier dare to do anything less than put on an armor? He is assuming that we know about the armor and that we would wear it. He's not warning them, just reminding them, put on your armor. See, God supplies the, the whole armor for his army, right? This is like a, uh, a school or a work uniform that a student wears every single day. It's protocol. He's like, no, y'all know the protocol. All right, so let me just encourage you and remind you, hey, wear the armor, brothers and sisters, right? He's assuming that we know what to do. It's expected. The standard for address has already been laid out, and it becomes second nature to all of us. And then he says that, so you will be able to stand firm, meaning successfully, invincibly, to stand as a victor, unvanquished, not defeated, or to run away. We don't get scared. It's accepting the conflict from him who attacks all of us with confidence that your weapons of warfare can and will endure every single thing that comes against us. Then Paul does, he, he, he does not say merely to stand against the devil. He says stand against the schemes of the devil, against the expert methods of Satan. The same word that was used uh, here was actually used in chapter 4, verse 14. The idea of expert skill should not be overlooked right here. See, the devil leads the opposing army, and he is a shrewd commander. Don't take him lightly, lest ye be overcome. See, he knows your game. <laughs> he knows what you like. He knows the thoughts that you have. He knows your desires. He even knows what you think that you do not desire. See, he has this craftiness plus force that he will present when he attacks you. So it's subtle. Sometimes it's overbearing. But you got to put on that armor. Thirdly, you got to know what you're up against. I just alluded to that of Satan's craftiness. Know what you're up against. Verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of his darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. See, our conflict is not with men. It ain't with the person next to you. It said it's uh, not against flesh and blood. Flesh and blood is usually a symbol of weakness, uh, demonstrating that our opponents are not uh, weak mortals, but powers of a far more challenging order. See, the picture of warfare implies that we do not face a physical army, as some may think. Uh, we face a spiritual army. We have to reiterate that. Therefore, our, our, our weapons must be spiritual. See, underneath and behind what is human and sinful, Satan himself is very much active. Uh, you may think it's something physical. You may think it's something carnal, but it's Satan behind every single thing. Amen. See, uh, he is a powerful enemy. This is why it says principalities, powers, and rulers. See, that means there are numerous minions of Satan. Uh, they are vigorous and rule over the world and heathen nations, in cities, communities, neighborhoods, everywhere. See, in this present darkness, that means it's Satan's territory. Right there. He is the kingdom of darkness, whereas Christ is the king of light and has the kingdom of light that we are a part of. And so the darkness vividly means the element and the results of Satan's attack. Any place that's dark, that means his schemes have been successful. Check out the contrast with Christ servants in comparison to uh, in contrast to Satan's. Christ's servants, we who are of Christ, we are who are of the household of faith. We are the children of the light, equivalent to order, knowledge, purity, joy, peace, patience, love. While the element of the devil and his servants is, is, is darkness, equivalent to confusion, ignorance, crime, terror, strife, disobedience, all types of misery. If you see that, heck, if you are even a part of that, 
You got to do an examination and be able to pinpoint that it's Satan who was at work. And I need to use the tools that God has given me to oppose that. He's at work. This is really practical right here. And so against the world rulers of this darkness, the whole world lies in darkness. How do I know that? Because 1 John chapter 5 says it. Chapter verse 19, the whole world lies in darkness. And then we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, which we read in Bible study, Satan is the God of this world. This world is not our home. This world is not the Lord's. This world that we live in right here is Satan's. We got to be mindful of that. Know how to operate in that. So again, we have to be able to identify what the evil part is. Fourthly, after we identify what the attack is, what the war is, we have to understand and use our weapons in verses 13 through 17. I'm not going to read it all for you, but it just merely says, take up the full armor of God. And it lists <clears throat> the different types of armor. In verse 13, it says the evil days means any time during this era in history until Jesus returns. The evil days. See, all the days are evil in their potential. All the days are evil and will become evil in reality. When Satan or his demons decide to use that day to attack us, it's just a matter of when he decides and where he decides to do it. But every day has the potential to be evil. See, this evil day that he is talking about is also not the entire time of our life either. But we are to arm ourselves for this particular day. It's not as if we're going to be attacked every single day. As God can allow that. But there are some days that we have peace. There are some times where we are not being attacked. We are being very much fruitful. But he is specifying a particular day that he will come. So we don't know when it will come out, but we have to be ready when it breaks. See, Paul has in mind the critical and decisive day which comes for each and every one of us, sometimes once, sometimes repeatedly, in which Satan ambushes us with all of his forces. So just be ready because the day is coming. Be ready. Don't be caught off guard. However, we must... We must be able or powerful enough to withstand without yielding a single assault. Therefore, we understand the phrase of having done all by using the whole armor of God, using everything that he has given us for which it is intended for. We use it to its full capability. We shall indeed be powerful to stand as conquerors. What he says right there. But here it goes. Here's, here's, the, uh, here's the armor. We can only be able to stand if we understand how to use it. First we have, burn up your loins in truth. Put on the belt of truth. This is how we use our weapons. <clears throat> this means to literally bound yourself in the truth of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Wrapping ourselves in honesty, wrapping ourselves in integrity, wrapping ourselves in nothing but genuineness, truthfulness, without hypocrisy. Amen. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 5 says, of the shoot from the stump of Jesse. See, that righteousness shall be the girdle of his waist. And faithfulness, the girdle of his loins. See, it's not, it's not the truth of the gospel that he alludes to, but the undergirding of truth in the sense of integrity. Truth in the inward being. Psalm 51 speaks of that truth in the inward being. It's, it is in us. See, as the girdle. It's, so when we are living in truth, when we are living <clears throat> in sincerity, in genuineness toward the Lord and toward each other, we can move in this world with ease. See, we can move without worrying about anything. Uh, we, we, we can move with the freedom as we relate to one another. So it is truth which gives us the freedom. I mean, think about it. 
when you're living amongst lies, you're trying to think about how to figure out another lie. You're trying to figure out how to navigate your circumstances. You're not living in freedom. No. What happens? You start worrying about everything. You have anxiety. You're trying to cover up like David. That is not living in freedom at all. You're worried about who's going to find you out. If we live in truth, we move with the freedom of flexibility that can only be found in Christ. Because the lack of perfect sincerity hampers us from every single turn. Secondly, we have the breastplate of righteousness. This is the righteousness put on by our faith in Jesus Christ. It is striving to be like Christ and living according to his ways of righteousness. The point of comparison is the protection which the breastplate afforded the soldier's vital organs. An abstract statement could be protecting the integrity of your spiritual life with the righteousness which the spirit of Christ produces within you. See, to neglect what we uh, know to be righteous action is to leave a gaping hole in our armor. Every time you neglect what you should do, which is right, you leave yourself open for attack. When you quench the spirit of God, you leave yourself open for a uh, gut punch every single time. Be ready to be, yeah, knocked down to your knees. Maybe sometimes we need it for your own humility. <laughs> he does chasten those who we love. Sometimes we get a little bit too high and we got to be knocked down. But hopefully we don't need to be knocked down too many times to learn from those mistakes. And so do what is right. Don't neglect it so that you don't leave yourself open for a dagger. Third, on this armor, he says, shod your feet with preparation of the gospel of peace. Here he is thinking more so of war sandals that those military men wore, which gave them a firm footing. It gave them a, a firm and steady posture. Uh, those shoes equipped the soldier for long and quick marches and gave them a steady stance. See, as soldiers cover their feet and legs with these greaves, like the uh, shin guards, to protect them against injuries, uh, so also the Christian must be draped with the gospel if they are to pass unhurt through this world. See, when you have a firm footing, a, a steady footing, a steady foundation, in the gospel, we will be able to stand unmoved against every single foe and enemy. But you got to be certain and you got to be sure. All right. And the reason why so many of us fall so often because we don't have a steady foundation. We got a lot of cracks in the foundation. We have a shifty foundation where we're being tossed to and fro on every single different doctrine. And it's not in the doctrine of God. All right. You have a steady foundation in the gospel. You will be able to withstand. So what do we have to do? We go back, man. We go back to the text. We go back and we read, we study, we pray, we ask one another. We commit ourselves to the teaching. We commit ourselves to the uh, community, to our, uh, uh, those in the household of faith, our covenant uh, community right here. We got to be sharp. We got to be strengthened so we know how to stand and what we stand on. Also, Paul says, in addition to all or above all, he says, take up the shield of faith. This is the shield formed for the primary armor of the soldier. The previous that we've mentioned, those items are supplemental, but this one is always certain. You must have it. You got to have the shield. See, the shield has the capability, in contrast to the other body armor, of being large enough for the body to hide it uh, behind. Maneuverable enough to give coverage of the body from specific directions of immediate threats. The act of trusting in God is presented as being similar in function on the spiritual level right there. God is maneuverable enough to, to keep us. He is big enough to hide us from the arrows of the devil. He's large enough to protect us all at once. He's sovereign like that. He's omnipresent like that. He's omniscient like that. Yes. So we have to use your capability for trusting in God to allow him to protect you from every particular dangerous temptation from the devil. 
flaming arrows that he talks about. These burning arrows, all these darts was a a, a special uh, danger to the soldier of old. So particular temptations such as fear is a dart. Complaining can be a dart against God. Anger can be a dart. Evil, desires, doubt, lust, despair. All are capable of kindling a flame of passion which may rage throughout a believer's whole nature. Even to the point of destroying us. See, these arrows represent every type of assault from the evil one. From temptation to unloving conduct to heretical teachings. The apostle knew that only faith's reliance on God could quench and deflect such weapons whenever they were hurled at every single Christian. And it's also worth noting that you're just not holding up the shield of faith by yourself. Uh, Romans, the Roman soldiers had a system of locking uh, these large shields together. I don't know if you ever saw the 300 movie years ago and how they locked up with each other. It was a pretty tight movie. Um, They locked up with one another, creating this wall, impenetrable wall with one another. Same thing for the corporate gatherings like this. I just don't hold up the shield by myself, but I'm sitting next to my brothers and sisters who are also holding up their shields beside me. We got each other's backs, right? We strengthen each other. We guard one another. We protect one another. Amen? That's what we should be doing. Then also, you got your helmet of salvation. This is the uh, protective power of each uh, of, uh, of the helmet used for the certainty of your salvation to protect your soul from the temptations and trials of the devil. You got to place this on your head. If you are a Christian, it's on your head. See, a soldier does not fight well without a hope of victory, right? You can't go into a battle already defeated. When you go into a battle already defeated, you're probably going to lose. When your captain is already low, like, man, look, they about to tear us up, man. Well, then why go on the field in the first place? I need some guys who, hey, do y'all want to win or not? Are we equipped for this or not? Have we been training or not? Has it all been in vain? Come on, man, step up to the plate, baby. We got to do this work together. We can't win. Heck, LA just beat Memphis. I didn't think they could do it, but they apparently have the the hope to do it. I guess y'all didn't watch that. So, yes. Putting on this helmet means that trusting in this salvation that is found in Christ, one can and should fully commit themselves to the ongoing struggle against powers which seek to prevent salvation. Salvation is a present deliverance. It's a present deliverance from the power of sin. And it will be completed in eternity by complete deliverance from every kind of evil. See, the present assurance of future salvation, full salvation rather, and ultimate victory is what keeps every single Christian from giving up the fight in this present day and age. Because we have this full assurance that is coming our way when Christ returns, the new heavens and the new earth. That is what keeps us going. If you can hold on to that, You're good to go. If you're uncertain about that, we got to have a conversation because we want you to be certain. And you should want yourself to be certain. You got to know where you're going. (laughs) You got to know who was on the throne. You got to know what Christ is coming back to do for you. You got to know what he's already done for you. And if you know that, you have the assurance to fight. You have that insurance. And you won't give up the fight. Psalm chapter 40, verse 7 is, oh, Lord, my Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. He's covered our heads for the days of battle, past, present, and future. You don't have to worry about the failure because it's not going to happen. You don't have to worry about the pain. You might have some, but it's not going to kill you. You will live. You will survive. You will persevere. Because he has already covered our heads in the day of battle with salvation. And then we have the sword of the spirit. If you paid attention to this text, here the apostle talks about the only 
offensive weapon. Everything else is for protection. This is the only thing used for the offense. A Roman soldier used this type of sword of, for cutting and for stabbing. The temptation of Christ, we notice in Matthew chapter 4, gives us the pattern for the way the Christian soldier is to use their sword. Well, what does it say? When Satan tried to tempt Christ, he said, man, should not live on bread alone by, by every word that proceeded from the mouth of God. Then he goes on to say, you shall put the Lord, you should not put the Lord thy God to the test. And you shall worship the Lord your God and, and him only you shall serve. He countered the devil with every single word from God. It wasn't by his own might. It wasn't by his own conjuring up of words. But every single thing he said was from the word of God. Amen. Every single one of our offenses. So, yes, you can use a sword to be on the defense, but you can also use it on the offense. Anything that happens, you can counter it with the word of God. The only issue is, if it's not in us, how do we even use it? What do we say? Do we make our own little philosophy? Do we make up our own theology? And yes, we will become heretics when we do that. Do you start proof texting things? This is why it's so key, why it's so good that we are sitting under expositional preaching, expositional teaching. Where we're trying to exegete the text, pull out of, explain from, and not putting our own selves in the Bible. Because if, when you read your own self into the word, you will go every single where that you ain't supposed to go. But we must allow the word to read us. Expose us, draw us to him through the word of God. But it must be in us in order to be on the offense. You will not grow if you're not rooted into the word of God. You have to have it. And then we must pray. After you put on the armor of God, you know how it's used. Paul says, this is how you can build around it. And first and foremost, and lastly, we got to pray. Without prayer, probably all going to be in vain because we are not asking the Lord to do anything for us on behalf of himself. And we're just doing it on our own strength if we are not praying. He says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times, at all times, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And then verse 19, and pray on my behalf. So not just for yourself, but pray for me too. That the utterance may be given to me in the open of my mouth to make known with boldness, with confidence, the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. I'm locked in this thing. I'm full time in this thing that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. This is an exhortation for the saints to be vigilant in prayer for each other and for Paul's ministry of proclaiming the gospel in which they participate by interceding. He insists that this is of vital importance for successful warfare. It is. It ain't just the fight by itself, it ain't just the armor by itself, but prayer is one of the main things that we use for war. See, through prayer, <clears throat> excuse me, though prayer is virtually uh, comprehended in most of the previous exhortations, it is now explicitly instructed and in a great variety of ways. He says all prayer and supplication, equivalent to the form of it, hey, pray in secret, pray out loud, you pray congregationally, you pray in all seasons. I don't care how you pray, pray. All right. I don't care when you pray, pray. No period of life should be without it. Youth, middle life, old, young, all demand prayer, no condition uh, of life. It doesn't matter, adversity, prosperity, sunshine, desolation, temptations, under important duties, heavy trials, you neighbor the whole gamut of life out of being infused with prayer. 
But true prayer is spiritual, and it is not true prayer unless by the Holy Spirit the heart is filled. It's a heavenward longing. It is a spiritual aspiration. Without being filled by the Holy Spirit, you won't have it. Unless the Lord gives you that unction to pray through salvation, you won't have the ability to pray. When we have that Holy Spirit encounter, it changes our prayers. Because one, it changes our hearts from stone to hearts of flesh. And then it changes our prayers from being cold formed to more heartfelt realities. The ordinary habit of the soul should be prayerful. Realizing the presence of God and looking for his grace and his guidance at all times. See, prayers to be made in every season. In times of prosperity and adversity, because in each we have need of the help and blessings of God, not just in times of felt need. See, the purpose of staying awake is praying specifically for needs and making intercession for others. We do a lot of things when we're awake. Prayer is probably not one of them. If you are, praise God, because I need help to do that more as well in my life while I'm awake. But while we are awake, we should be praying without ceasing as much as we can, right? When a thought or a person comes to mind, pray for that. Situation comes to mind, pray for that. It's quick. It ain't got to be long or elongated. Just lift it up to the Lord, whatever it may be. But to be mindful of prayer in all seasons and all times is what he's asking of us. Not only that, he says, keep an alert. Keep an alert. Refers both to just watching for opportunities for prayer, like I just mentioned. Watch for opportunities of prayer and keeping watch against everything which would hinder your prayer. Such as being overcome with sleep, drowsiness. I know all of us have been guilty of being too tired to pray and being too tired to read the word of God. Sometimes when you open up your Bible, you just fall asleep. Right? But he's calling us to be on alert of all times. Remember, Jesus asked his disciples in the garden, keep alert. And these cats fell asleep. Keep alert. Man, these, these guys fell asleep. So we all have the tendency of doing that. God knows that, right? And so he doesn't want us to be hindered by any of distractions. He doesn't want us to be hindered because of our lack of being aware. We must try and be on guard as much as we can to try and be as prayerful as we can. Sounds totally different, right? And so we must have a self-discipline. This is what he's stressing here. He's saying, train ourselves to be disciplined, to be prayerful at all times. We didn't have it before. You have the opportunity to have it now. Don't just be disciplined and put on the armor. Be disciplined in prayer as well. In prayer as well. That's the beginning of all things. A Christian should never be cut off guard with evil or temptations. But we should always provide watchful alertness against every approach of evil. And this is what I mean by this. You might not see everything coming, but you should expect everything to come. And if you are my brother and sister in Christ, and you see something that I don't see, tell me. Brother, sister, I am concerned about you in this area. I see tendencies in this area. I just want to, you know, talk to you about that. Be on the alert. Be on the guard. We help one another in this walk. And so, this is... <clears throat> what it means to be alert. We are to have an unshakable tenacity to pray for every single one. And this means perseverance. It's not mechanical, but it ought to be a passionate fidelity towards praying for the saints. And then last we have in verses 19 through 20. Paul is asking that we would also pray for him that God would put words on his lips 
that he would give him a message to proclaim when ready to speak. That the Lord would grant him boldness. That is, the ability to be frank and to be uncompromising, not to allow his own insecurities to get in the way of sharing the gospel, which was the mystery of the apostle. Uh, It's what he wanted to make known. That is, God's world-embracing purpose of redemption through Christ. The intention of drawing the Gentiles into God's house through Christ Jesus. That was the mystery that was formerly hidden, divine truth, and is now the means by which this purpose is carried out. See, it refers to the revelation contained in the gospel. The apostle's earnest wish was that he might expound his message in a matter that became him and his highest commission. That his imprisonment might not, excuse me, excuse me, might have no disparaging effect upon him. That he might not, in his address, compromise the name and dignity of an ambassador of Christ. That's why Paul would say that after I have preached, he says he beats his body into submission, into a discipline. That after he has preached, he would not be disqualified because he does not want to bring a disdain upon the dignity of an ambassador of Christ. See, he speaks as he does of his imprisonment, not to excite feelings of sympathy. No, he doesn't want that from his readers. What concerns Paul most is, is not that his wrists may be unchained, that his shackles would be broken, that he would be set free, no. But that his mouth may be open in testimony. Not that he may be set free, but that the gospel may spread freely without hindrance. Imprisonment brings its own special temptation to bow to the fear of what those with political power may do. Yeah. Paul knows that he has a responsibility and a privilege which remains his to the end of his life. He's like, yeah, I know the political powers are around me. I know they can say and do whatever they want to do. But that is not my intent here is to break free of that. I know the land that I live in. I know who has control in this sphere, but I will not fear them. I will still proclaim the goodness of God with boldness, with clarity, with conviction, so that God's word will go out and not come back void, so that he can accomplish what he has set out to do. So even in this life that we live in, saints, yeah, we're in D.C., political power is all around us. We have rules and regulations that we're up against. We're trying to navigate these waters as carefully as possible without being canceled, whatever. But the thing is, we can easily allow these distractions and these hindrances and these evil powers around us to shut our mouths. But according to the scriptures, we are not to shut our mouths. We are to continue to keep our mouths open and boldly proclaim the goodness of God and the gospel message that saves to all. That's what we ought to do. And so we must pray to that end for one another. We must encourage to that end one another and train to that end. Build each other up and equip to that end. Moses reminded Joshua uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 31 says the Lord himself goes before you and will be with you he will never leave you nor forsake you do not be afraid do not be discouraged Joshua's task of taking the promised land seemed impossible but with the Lord the task was possible for he would never forsake Joshua And God has thought of us and sent his armor for us. He knows that each part of us needs to be protected. And he has suited it just for us to use because he is going to make sure that we are successful and overcomers in every single attack. Because we have a promised home that he is going to make sure that we all get to. And he's given us a suitable armor and a weapon for battling every single adversary until that day returns. And just like he'll never forsake Joshua, he will never forsake us. Just put on and use what he's given us, and we'll be all right. Let's pray. Thank you, Father.
for your word. Out of Ephesians 6, Lord, that the armor that you've given us is suitable for every single attack. May we be mindful to use it. May we be mindful, God, that when we use it, that we help our brothers and sisters beside us. And that, Lord, we will always be prayerful, God, seeking you, relying upon you, and not on our own strength because our strength comes from the Lord. And we pray, Lord, that all that we do, that we will stand and never bow down. And we trust that you will get the glory, that you would get the victory out of every single circumstance that will benefit us for our good and give you the glory out of all so that they may say, the Lord God did this yeah. and not man. Yeah. It's in Christ's name we pray. Jesus. Amen.